Welcome to Piano Rhapsody, an amateur's guide to classical piano. This is a podcast where you follow the musical journey of an amateur piano player who is striving to play advanced level works one day, specifically Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue, which is where the podcast gets its name. Every week, we break down one of the pieces that I encounter along the road to this goal, ranging from the 18th century all the way up to modern day. We'll explore the history surrounding the work, examine the music within, and hopefully we all walk away a little bit more informed and appreciative of classical music. This is episode 17.4, the fourth and final episode in a series where we are discussing a few of the greatest hits by one of the most famous composers of the classical period, Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. We've spent the previous three weeks analyzing Mozart's 16th piano sonata, Movement by Movement, learning all about sonata and rondo forms. Piano sonatas have multiple movements to them, usually between two to five. And like modern albums, one of the tracks tends to stick out as the popular one. In the 16th sonata, it was the first movement. This week, instead of picking apart all three movements of Mozart's 11th sonata, we're going to focus on the most well-known one. And that would be the third movement, better known as Rondo alla Turca, also called the Turkish Rondo, or the Turkish March. But before we jump into this work, let's revisit the Mozart family in Vienna and see how the remainder of Mozart's life played out. When we left him last week, Mozart was starting to find success as a solo pianist, and he was pumping out a steady stream of solo piano works. But around 1785, which would put Mozart at about 29 years old, he began to focus on opera. And this is the time he would write two of his most well-known works, granted they weren't for the piano. The operas The Marriage of Figaro and Don Giovanni. Both of these operas saw success in Vienna and Prague, and were mainstays of the operatic repertoire for years, actually still being performed to this day. But even in high times of great success, life will ignore your happiness and hit you with a fastball straight to the face. Unfortunately, Mozart's father Leopold never got to see his son's famous operas at their peak, because he passed away in 1787. In a letter to his friend, Mozart wrote, I inform you that on returning home today, I received the sad news of my most beloved father's death. You can imagine the state I am in. Even though Mozart moved 200 miles away to Vienna, met his wife Constance, and started a family, he could never shake the desire for his father's approval. Along with the grief that comes with a heavy loss like this, Mozart likely grappled with these unresolved emotions, as he experienced glowing acclaim from these operatic works, and begrudgingly, his father would never see it. At the height of his popularity, Emperor Joseph II sought to keep Mozart grounded in Vienna and offered him a part-time position as chamber composer. It only offered Mozart 800 florins a year, but it also wasn't very demanding. It was more of a ploy to keep his anchor in the sand. You know, they say the higher you climb, the harder you fall. Due to uncontrolled circumstances of human politicking, Joseph II and the Austrian Empire 
declared war against the Ottoman Empire in 1788, an event that would be called the Austro-Turkish War. As a well-respected leader, Joseph II spent a majority of his time at the front lines. He ended up catching malaria, which ran rampant throughout the military, and perished at the battlefield. Things weren't much better with Mozart's supporters at home, either. War isn't great for the economy, so the Austrian aristocracy saw their prosperity shrinking. And with tighter pocketbooks, what do you think the first expense is to get cut? Just like in modern school systems, the funding for the arts gets slashed. Mozart's income shrank as his patrons were no longer able to support him. So he picked up and moved his family to the suburbs and started to beg his friends for money. These requests were described by one of Mozart's friends as, quote, a pitiful sequence of letters, end quote. As you might imagine, Mozart entered a period of depression, and in 1790, he decided to travel outside of war-torn Austria to a city tour of Germany, trying to scrounge up ways to make some money. His luck began to return, albeit briefly, in 1791. He acquired a few wealthy patrons from Hungary and Amsterdam, who helped pick him back up off his feet. This year also started as a fertile, highly productive compositional year for Mozart, including the completion of his final piano concerto in B-flat major, K number 595. But fate once again took a turn, and Mozart fell very ill in September of that year. His health deteriorated during the following months, with symptoms of swelling, pain, and vomiting. And if you have seen the movie Amadeus, you might remember that he was indeed working on another of his most well-known works on his deathbed, The Requiem. He was dutifully nursed by his wife Constance and her sister, but Mozart ended up passing away at home on December 5th, 1971, at the age of 35. He never finished his requiem. Aside from his preoccupation with finishing the requiem, the only evidence we have of what Mozart was thinking at the time of his death is revealed in the last letter he ever wrote to his father. Mozart writes, As death, when we come to consider it closely, is the true goal of our existence. I have formed during the last few years such close relations with the best and truest friend of mankind, that his image is not only no longer terrifying to me, but is indeed very soothing and consoling. And I thank my God for graciously granting me the opportunity of learning that death is the key which unlocks the door to our true happiness. I never lie down at night without reflecting that. Young as I am, I may not live to see another day. 
The differential for Mozart's cause of death is a wide net, including, but certainly not limited to, rheumatic fever, strep throat, influenza, mercury poisoning, and kidney failure. His funeral was a modest affair, attended by several musicians, including Salieri himself, of Amadeus fame. He was buried as a commoner, not as an aristocrat, but also not as a pauper, which was standard Viennese custom at the time. Like with many artists who died at a young age, his fame rose after his passing. Memorial services were held throughout Europe with mass attendance, and several biographies were penned. Due to the war and the Mozarts' extravagant spending throughout their lives, Constance was saddled with debts after her husband's passing. She was a smart, sensible woman, however, and organized memorial concerts and made deals with publishers to immortalize all of her husband's works. This not only got her and her children out of debt, but ultimately made her very wealthy. She's also to thank for such a clear and complete preservation of Mozart's career. Without her diligence, there would have likely been many works of Mozart's lost to history. One of those works might have been Rondo alla Turca, the third movement of Mozart's 11th piano sonata. Now this was written in 1783, five years before Austria declared war on Turkey. So Mozart writing a piece of music that pays homage to Turkish marches, Turkish marches, that's a tongue twister, was not an unpatriotic move at the time. Not a piece he would have likely written later in his life, though, based on the political and cultural circumstances, especially considering that the war decimated his lifestyle. This style of Turkish music was very much in vogue at the time, emulating the military marching bands of the Ottoman Empire. Rondo alla Turca is the finale of the sonata, and it's written in rondo form a style that we've grown to know and love during the past few weeks. Rondos can take a variety of forms, but the general idea is that there's a section that always comes back after each new material. Most of the time, rondos use the A section as this repeated theme. But Mozart's Rondo alla Turca bends the rules a little bit. He instead elects the B section as the dominant section, and gives it an unusual rondo form of AB, CB, AB. So it's the B section here that is the chorus-like part of the movement, which is actually closer to modern music than Mozart could have ever realized at the time. This may be the third movement of Mozart's Sonata in A major, but this Rondo's A section does not start in the sonata's tonic key of A major. It actually opens in A minor, with a theme that will likely sound instantly familiar to you. The B section is the march-like section, with the right hand pounding out a melody based on octaves. This is the main thematic material of this movement, a section that'll play out three times before we're done. Even though it doesn't come first sequentially, 
It's kind of like the A section at heart. It's the section we not only hear the most often, but it also shares the tonic key of the sonata. So this section swaps the previous section's A minor key for A major, which helps brighten up this section even more. Then comes the third and final introduction of major thematic material. The C theme is the technical centerpiece of the movement. It's a nonstop run with the right hand that swaps to the relative minor key of F-sharp minor. So we've worked our way up through the alphabet ABC. Now we're going to hear the second iteration of our chorus, or section B, back to the tonic key of A major. At this point, instead of hearing new material, which would have been added as a D section, we receive a second helping of the A section, which takes us back to A minor. The repetition of these themes may play a part in why this piece is so familiar and well-known. And since we're following the idea of a rondo, we must return to our main theme in A major. So we hear the B section for a third and final time. This time, though, Mozart spices things up a little bit and splits the octaves. Rather than playing both notes at the same time, he writes it with an effect of jumping up. Then, to conclude this rondo and the sonata, Mozart writes an extended coda that remains in the tonic key of A major. This section recalls moments from both the A and B sections drives the movement home with energy, completing the unique rondo form. This is the third movement of Mozart's 11th piano sonata in A major, K331, better known as Rondo alla Turca.
That's a wrap on Mozart and two of his most well-recognized piano works. Now, this might be a hot take, but Mozart's never been one of my favorite composers for the piano. Out of the three major composers of the classical era, I've always preferred Haydn, and especially Beethoven. But when you take Mozart's entire body of work into account, it's no question that he's one of the greatest and most prolific composers to ever live. I've definitely warmed up to him a bit during this past month, though, and I enjoyed reading about his life. See, look at that. Everybody's learning on this podcast. Next up on our journey is another new composer to the podcast. We're going to jump ahead to the Romantic era and crack into a large collection of stunning piano works, The Songs Without Words by Felix Mendelssohn. And we'll do that in two weeks. Talk to you then. You can find the standalone recording of the piece we discussed today directly in the podcast feed. Check out Piano Rhapsody on SoundCloud for all of the tracks heard on this podcast and more. Find me on Twitter at Piano Rhapsody or email me at pianorhapsodypodcast at gmail.com. If you haven't already, the best way to support the podcast is to hit the subscribe button on your podcatcher and consider rating or reviewing. It's the easiest way to never miss a new episode and it helps the podcast gain more visibility. Thanks as always for your time and your ears. And remember, the piano keys are black and white, but they sound like a million colors in your mind.